This is Cultivating Indigenous Voices from KXCI Tucson, hosted and produced by Tina Andrew. Today's guest is Maya, and she's here to talk about her book titled Stories My Grandmother Told Me. Her grandmother, Esther Small Poncho, grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. With family ties to the South, she also told stories of her great-grandmother, who was born into slavery and freed when she was just five years old. Maya also tells the story of her grandmother, Esther, who found love and married a Thanaoth man named John Poncho. Hello, everybody. My name is Maya Bernadette, and I am an enrolled member of the Tonawatham Nation. My mother is African-American and Tonawatham, and my father is Mexican-American and white. Our Tonawatham side, we're from Santa Rosa Village in Guachi District. So the reason this book was brought about was because of my senior essay advisor, Jay Gitlin, who's still at Yale. Um, he's a professor of history, and I majored in the history of science and medicine. So at Yale, all seniors in that major have to write a senior essay, which is mm -hmm. basically a 40-page essay, kind of like an intensive research project on oh, a topic of their choice. And so since I was a history of science and medicine, I wanted to do something on the Indian Health Service. And kind of unrelated to that, when I was talking to my essay advisor, he was curious how I became involved in the Native American community. Because at Yale, I was really involved in the Native community there. I had a position my sophomore year. I think it was like activity coordinator or something like that. And then my junior year, I was president of the Association of Native Americans at Yale. And so he was curious how I was involved. So I told him about my grandmother and how she met my grandfather. And he said, you know, that's a book right there. Uh -huh. So he was the one that put <laughs> the idea in my head because to me, I, it's funny, but I think all of us, we never think our stories or our lives are really that unusual because <laughs> it's your life. So yeah. when someone who's looking at it from the outside is like, that is a really unusual and very unique story. Mm -hmm. It really made me uh, change my perspective on my own life. Like, oh, mm -hmm. I didn't realize uh, my life was that interesting. <laughs> and so he was the one who kind of made me really take it seriously. And also, too, I have always loved to write. Um, it never, it just kind of was the perfect mix of just my interest, my hobby in writing, and then him saying that I should really turn it into a book. But at that time, I was a senior in college, so I just kind of put it on the back burner. I never really thought about it. And then I found myself in 2012 back at Yale and oh, Professor okay. Gitlin was still there being like, how's that book coming along? Oh, I was wow. like, well, I guess I better get started on it. And so it's been a really long process because writing a book is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's very hard. I had no idea where to begin. Wow, I can only imagine. Yeah. So I just started writing and um, the very, very beginning stages, um, what I first started writing was like, uh, it was not the direction I wanted to go in. Um, I started off in like a memoir style, just kind of first person. And I even scrapped that. So I have, there's no record of it. <laughs> wow. Not like it was that bad, but I just didn't want to go that route because I was just feeling like in a first person style. It was sounding oh, like I a... See like a technical manual or something. Oh. Where it's like, so I was born here and my grandmother was born here. Like not like a fun read. Yeah, It was yeah. more just like a collection of facts. <laughs> so then I switched and thought more of this literary nonfiction approach. Mm -hmm. 
which is what I'm sticking with now because I think it just really brings to life how I envision these stories in Mm -hmm. my own head. And what I've been telling people who are interested in the book is that when it comes to storytelling and especially how, you know, even me and my sister imagine these stories is just like how it is in the book. We're like, in our own minds, we still take ourselves back to when she was young, I was young, Mm -hmm. just sitting at the kitchen table and our grandmother telling us these stories and repeating them over and over. And they Mm -hmm. almost are like a central foundation of our very lives. Like, They just give our lives meaning and purpose. And so that's what I'm hoping that the readers can get from this book is just how we lived these stories, Mm -hmm. how we kind of interpreted them in our own minds and how it's just been carried with us and will be carried with us throughout our lives. You know, you had told me about the book and the story really is interesting. It just really opened up my imagination and I could just picture what it was like back in time, you know. And the fact that it's sharing a a particular type of history in a time that I wasn't even born in. I mean, this was generations ago in Santa Rosa at the school that is still in existence right right now. (laughs) And I went to that school And the perspective of black teachers working in Native American communities is Mm. is a whole topic in itself. Exactly. Yeah. And also, too, what I love about this book is that there's just so many different themes. I mean, family, Mm -hmm. of course, is a big one. Mm -hmm. But also storytelling is a really important theme that I'm trying to get through with this book. And then additionally, with the Native American approach as well. Mm -hmm. It's about kind of involving a Native American voice in there, specifically like a Tonawatan voice, because cultures are always changing. Our culture has Mm -hmm. changed in the last hundred years. It's changed dramatically. And so I also wanted to capture or explore, like even being Tonawatan, it's different for different generations. True. Like my grandfather's generation being Tonawatan back then, they didn't even call themselves Tonawatan. They call themselves the Papago. (laughs) And then being Tonawatan now, that experience in and of itself is so different. So I wanted to explore kind of all these different avenues. So when I finished the first draft, finally, after years, I was just so relieved. (laughs) I was like, oh my goodness. And then after that brief feeling of relief, I was like, oh, so then I got to start editing it and work on the next draft. (laughs) Well, you do a really good job in doing that in the book. And I I think that this can be a jumpstart for people to kind of start looking at this story and uh, having a better understanding of the life and even the topic itself. And I know you talked at the end of the um the story you talked about Khalil mm-hmm. and I was just curious what what did you learn from his research well I didn't read his whole entire thesis because it's really really long but I did read bits and parts of it he did use a small part of an interview with my grandmother in his uh, dissertation and it was interesting he was exploring basically kind of like the contradictions and complexities with Native American African American and US government relations Because what's very interesting is that um, when it came to the U.S. government's approach to Native Americans, they wanted them to assimilate us. You know, we're Native American. They wanted us to assimilate to the dominant um, mainstream culture and to really kind of downplay, if not kind of eliminate altogether, certain unique aspects of Native culture. Whereas the U.S. government approach to African Americans is drastically different. And especially Mm, when it came to education, 
African-Americans wanted education. They wanted to learn English. They wanted to learn the trades. They wanted to better themselves in that way. Whereas ironically for Native Americans, many times education was a bad thing because learning English, learning trades meant that you were not learning your own language. You weren't learning your own cultural practices. So he kind of explored briefly like that contradiction and then how when African-Americans came to reservations, it was almost like they were maintaining um, that U.S. assimilation approach. But then at the same time, they could also relate to Native Americans because they were treated as second class citizens just like Native Americans were. So it was really interesting. Like he really explored all these contradictions, these different ideas, different approaches, and even like different goals of the African-American community versus the Native American community. Wow. What, you know, what is our goal in education, right? Yeah. Um, that's, I think, one of the fundamental questions. And I think for Natives now, anyway, it's to try and maintain our culture and maintain our language. Mm-hmm. Whereas for the African-American community, I mean, of course, education is to maintain their culture, but the language is English. So it's not really comparable. Oh, I see. Um, and then it is different, too, I think, from back then. What is so interesting about generations is you see how things flip. Because yeah. back then, you know, in my grandfather's era, they did know the language fluently. They did mm-hmm. know the culture. Mm-hmm. They yes. were so seeped in that. So they didn't need education to maintain that because mm-hmm. it was just your way of life. In fact, you know, my grandfather even said, like, he wanted his kids, my mom and sister, to learn English. And he wanted to learn English. Um, and, you know, he wanted to learn kind of mainstream American ways. He felt that it would help him get ahead. Whereas now it's kind of flipped. Now yes. we're steeped in American culture and American ways and yes. we want the education system to teach us our native language and our mm-hmm. culture. Yeah. So, and, yeah, and that's the position that we're in as young autumn. We're finding ourselves in the position where we're wanting to learn our history, our culture, our language, and we're making efforts on our end to do that because, again, being brought up to go to school and, and learn... Uh, the Western ways of you know having that kind of education and things like that. Um, so yeah, you're right. Totally, totally flipped on that topic. Yeah. Um, so after reading the book, I was curious about what happened to Miss Morgan and you know things like that. So if you can share a little bit about your grandmother. Yeah. So. She's doing good for her age. And I mean, she, you know, of course, being 94, she definitely gets tired a lot more easily. Yeah, yeah. So she doesn't really like to be out and about like all day or whatever. And yeah, she just lives like a more quiet life. So she still tries to quilt when she mm-hmm. can. Um, she loves to listen to the radio and just to watch TV. <laughs> so where is she at now? Um, she, she lives with my mom and my sister in Oakland. Okay. And they've been living together for years, actually. My okay. grandmother, when I was born, because I'm the oldest, she moved in with my mom and my dad. And so I basically consider like a second mother oh, that's um, awesome. in a sense because she basically raised me and my sister because my parents were always busy working. So she's just been a part of my life since I can remember. So she stayed in California. She, yeah. Mm-hmm. She, she hadn't gone back just for visiting, right? Right. And yeah. you're, you're still in contact with the family in New York? Are they still there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. So it's a lot of extended family because my grandmother had two brothers and then they, I think, had like five kids each. Mm-hmm. Um, and then those, then they had kids. Yeah. And so that extended <laughs> family is still in New York. And That's I visited, awesome. I think it was her nephew, my grandmother's nephew, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. I visited him and his family 
years ago, like seven years ago, I think, when mm-hmm. I was still living in New York. Okay, and cool. then um, they remember, uh, they remembered my grandfather, Uncle John. Oh, <laughs> Uncle John, <laughs> that's so awesome. So, and and what about um, Mr. John Poncho? Can you share a little bit about him? Yeah, so he passed away. It was before I was born. So I was born in '86, like a couple years before that. And then he wanted to be buried in Santa Rosa. Okay, so that's where he's at. Yeah, so that's where he's at. And so we try to visit his grave every year or so, especially for um, Dia de los Muertos. And your grandmother, does she still make the trips to the res when you guys do go? Unfortunately, she can't anymore. Now she can't travel anymore. Yeah, okay. Um, You know, Miss Morgan, you talked about her in the story as well. Did your grandmother keep contact with her for as long as she could? She did. Yep. Um, She died, I think, at around 65 years of age. Okay. And so her the last part of her career was um, spent there at Santa Rosa. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. The dedication and the passion and the love that she had for the autumn. Yes. That's amazing. And Florence, her good friend that she was always writing to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I know. So Florence just continued. I'll have to ask my grandmother what job she ended up getting. Um, but she just stayed in New York the rest mm-hmm. of her life. And um, as she got older, she suffered from cancer. So she never oh, married okay. or had kids, but she lived with her nephew. Right. Um, but my grandmother and them would always write to each other. They even went on a trip to Hawaii, I think, like <laughs> when they were in cool. their 80s. So oh, I was like, wow, over 10 years ago. <laughs> but I think that was the last trip my grandmother went on. Because as you get older, I know it's just a lesson for all of us. Like yes. one day we'll not be able to travel anymore. Oh, man. <laughs> Yeah, I'm but not going to think about that right I now. Know. <laughs> when we're 80 or 90. Um, but yeah, so that was like, that was really good. You know, they could do that trip. And then she passed away of cancer uh, a couple years ago. And we didn't get a chance to read the chapter. Um, but my grandmother has a whole other part to her. So she loves to quilt. She's an artist. So nice. she <laughs> paints, she sculpted, she quilts. Uh-huh. And so I definitely want to put some of her paintings in the book as well. That's amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in, taking the time to be in the studio with me today and sharing this amazing story, a love story between two people from two different cultures, from two different parts of the U.S. So Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so unique how it all worked together. Yes. And here you are because of that. Yeah. Too. That's yep. amazing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Right now, we are going to hear a short introduction by Esther Small Poncho, Maya's grandmother, and then a short reading by author Gabriella Maya Bernadette. My name is Esther Small Poncho. I was born in New York City, Manhattan, in 1925. You will find the story of my journey from Harlem to the Papago Indian Reservation in uh, southern Arizona. An ancient group of people who lived in this land before there was an America. I know you will enjoy my story. Chapter 1 Harlem. It was the picture that got her attention. As she exited the library off of 115th and 7th, she saw it hanging right there on the bulletin board near the door. 
It was a Native American family, huddled together next to a horse underneath the vast southwestern mountains, the desert sand beneath their feet. It was a scene Esther was not used to seeing. Being a Harlem girl, a black family huddled next to the subway entrance underneath the New York City skyline was a scene Esther would be more familiar with. Spaniards, Jews, Irish, Italians, blacks, West Indians, all different kinds of people coexisting to create a rich, vibrant, multicultural, multi-ethnic community was all Esther knew. Mountains, Native Americans, desert, the Southwest, these were all new to Esther, something that even the diversity of Harlem did not have. She looked more closely at the picture and realized it was a poster for a program to teach Native Americans on reservations. She took down the address, someplace in Washington, D.C. She would write to them, she thought, and see what this program could offer her. It was not that Esther had any desperate need to leave Harlem. She loved this city and couldn't imagine a better place to live. She was born on June 4, 1925, in an apartment on 98th and Lex, in fact, through a home birthing program sponsored by the Harlem Hospital. She grew up in a three-story brownstone a couple of blocks uptown with daddy, mother, mama, Esther's maternal grandmother, and her two brothers, Harold and Alfonso. Her aunts, uncles, and cousins all lived close by. Aunt Maddie would always come by to chat, sometimes with a sweet potato pie in hand. Cousin Lillian would periodically stop in to play with Esther, and oftentimes Esther saw Aunt Mary sitting on the stoop in front of the brownstone. Esther and her brothers never asked mother or mama about their life in Jacksonville, Florida, where they lived before they migrated up north. They would hear stories sometimes, though, bits and pieces of family history, lives lived in a time and place that Esther and her brothers could only imagine. Back in Jacksonville, mother would say, I walked around without shoes. We would save our shoes for Sunday school. Harold and Alfonso would make a face. No shoes, they whispered to Esther, snickering. Esther knew what they meant. Walking around the swamps of Florida with nothing but your bare feet touching the damp, wet ground? Ugh! One day, as I was walking back from school, Mother continued, I was passing by the crick and saw a baby alligator. She pronounced the word creek like crick, a remnant of her southern upbringing. I said to myself, I'm going to get me a baby alligator. So I jumped into the crick, grabbed it, held it with both hands while the tail was whipping back and forth. It even hit me a couple times. I was surprised how strong its tail was. I brought it home and put it in our tub that Mama used to wash clothes in. Mama came back home and saw the alligator in the tub, and she said, You need to put the alligator back in the water. But I just caught it, I told Mama. But she said I still had to put it back. So I grabbed the alligator out of the tub and put it back in the creek. Mama would smile every time she heard Mother recall this incident. Very few stories about the South made her smile. Sometimes, Mother would talk about Mama Agnes, Esther's great-grandmother, who was born into slavery and freed when she was five years old. As a young girl, she remembered other slaves on the plantation telling her, You're so pretty, just like your mother Sally, Mother would say. They told her, You smile just like your mother. Esther could only imagine little Agnes, a five-year-old child, bringing water in a pail to the workers in the field, never knowing who her mother was or where she went. Rumor had it she had been sold to a plantation in either the Carolinas or Georgia, but feeling connected to her nonetheless, just as Esther felt when she heard these stories. Agnes learned to read from the Bible and eventually became a registered midwife. Other times, Esther heard stories about Mama's experience working in the fields before she moved up north. Field work was the best job a Southern Black could hope for in the early 1900s. Mother and Aunt Lovey, Mother's sister, children at the time, would often work in the fields too to help Mama the best they could. 
One day, Mama found out that the white landowners were going to pay them less than what they had said. Mama wasn't having that, so she took Mother and Lovey and tried to leave. One of the landowners told her she couldn't do that, and Mama told them, I'm leaving because you're not paying me, so I'm leaving and taking my children with me. The landowner said that it was illegal to take workers from the farm, and so he threw Mama in jail. They left Mother and Lovey, the workers that Mama was illegally taking off the farm, out there in the fields by themselves. One of the other farmhands went back to tell Mama's family that she was in jail and her kids were left out in the field with nothing. And then the other farmhands said they weren't going to work for these landowners anymore because how could they be so cold as to throw these children's mother in jail and then just leave the children out there in the fields by themselves? Esther could just picture it. Dark, cold, no food, no water, out in the fields alone. Remember when they put you in jail and they left us out there? Mother would sometimes ask Mama. Mama would just nod. I just didn't want Lovey to cry. It got dark and I didn't want her to cry, Mother would say. Eventually, someone came to the jail, paid a fine, and Mama was out. But the story still stayed. This was oral history, and every time Mother would say to Mama, remember, Esther just listened. She learned so much just by listening. On rare occasions, they would talk about the incident. It happened one summer when Aunt Maddie, Mama's sister, went with her husband, John, to do some seasonal work. They lived in a camping area with all the other male workers and their wives. Every day, the men would go off to work, and the women would stay back in the camping area cooking, washing clothes, taking care of children, and so forth. Life seemed normal, uneventful even, but there was always danger, lurking, waiting, watching. The men knew it, but tried not to think about it, because knowing that their wives were in danger and not being able to do anything about it was a thought too unbearable to think. The women knew it and tried their best to avoid it, but most times they were not successful. The danger was too strong, too powerful, too evil to shake off, but Aunt Maddie found a way. It was only a matter of time, but one day the danger came. It came when the men were still at work and the women were by themselves at the camping ground. She could see its sneering face coming toward her, its white hand reaching at her clothes, trying to tear them off. Aunt Maddie wasn't afraid. She took out her knife that she always carried with her and cut him. She cut the danger, and it screamed and ran off. It went and told all its friends what this black woman had done and stirred up a vengeance inside people's hearts. The local townspeople were going to hang her, Aunt Maddie knew, and so she had to leave. She left Florida, somehow made it to New York, Esther never quite knew how, maybe remnants of the Underground Railroad, and found John's sister, who was living there at the time. Safe in New York, she sent for Mother. Sixteen years old, Mother left Jacksonville and went to New York by boat. Shortly after her arrival, Mama left Jacksonville, too, and found her and the rest of the family in New York. As for Daddy's family, Esther knew nothing about it. She knew his family was from Charleston, South Carolina, and that was it. He would not talk about his family, not ever. He ended up passing away when Esther was 10 years old. Though the family was devastated by his death, they put it behind them and moved forward, as all families must do when someone passes away. Despite the death of Daddy, Esther still had fond memories of her childhood. When Esther was about five or six years old, she would sit in front of the window at her family's old house, waiting for Daddy to come home. She would look out the window, waiting, waiting, until finally she saw him. She ran down the stairs and met him on the first floor. He would pick her up, put her on his shoulder, and walk up to the fifth floor where they lived. She took his shoes off and would bring his slippers for him to put on. There was a piano in the room, so after Daddy was settled and comfortable, Esther would play one of her favorite songs, Stormy Weather, and sing along. 
He would laugh good-heartedly, and later Esther thought that maybe he thought it was funny because she was just a child playing this adult song. Don't know why there's no sun up in the sky, Esther would sing. Since my man and I ain't together, keeps raining all the time, stormy weather. Don't know why there's no sun up in the sky, stormy weather. Since my man and I ain't together, keeps raining all the time. After they moved to the brownstone, Esther would still sit in front of the window, this time waiting for her friends. Esther, Esther, the neighborhood kids would yell, come down and play. And play Esther would. Esther grabbed her jacket and ran down the stairs, and she would play with the other kids until the lights came on. When the lights came on, that was the sign that everyone had to go home for supper. That was the culture of the time, really, to have the kids play on their own until it was time to go back home. You never went over to the other kids' houses or apartments. That was rude, and you never even called. Just a window was all you needed. Go up, wave if someone was there, and out to the sidewalk they came. As Esther got older and entered her teen years, She explored Harlem on her own, walking down Central Park in the afternoon, going to the local fabric store to buy fabric for the dresses she was teaching herself to make, and spending hours in the libraries and bookstores that lined the Harlem streets. She also liked to walk down 125th Street to see the bookstores there. She remembered going into a storefront bookstore one time where she saw a group of men gathered around a table in the corner talking about politics and race. One of the men in the group was a poet she had heard about, who had moved to Harlem from the South and was really trying to make a name for himself here. She bought one of his books and went over to him to ask if he could sign it. He nodded and took out a pen from his pocket. He opened up the front cover and signed his name. Langston Hughes, it read. Esther took the book, thanked him, and headed back home. How nice, she thought. She wondered if maybe he would become famous someday. Esther had a great life in Harlem, but she felt that at 24 years old, it was time for an adventure. Harlem would always be there, So why not leave for a couple years and live in a place far away, among a group of Native Americans, no less, and see what kind of experiences she could have? She thought it was a great idea, and coming home from the library that night, she took out a piece of paper, a pen, and started writing. Dear the Bureau of Indian Affairs, she wrote, I saw your poster earlier today and am writing to inquire about your program. I would like an application and more information about teaching Indians. Sincerely, Esther Small. Back then, in the 1940s, they were called Indians. It wasn't until about the 1960s that the term Native American came into popular use. A couple weeks later, the BIA wrote back to her. She tore it open and looked at the papers inside. There was an application for her to fill out, a written exam, and a map showing the different reservations she could go to. Easy enough questions, especially since Esther had just graduated from NYU the year before with a BS in home economics education. Her degree had trained her to be a teacher. Looking at the map the Bureau of Indian Affairs had sent her, Esther decided to pick the furthest place possible. Looking toward the western part of the map, her eyes moved downward toward the southwestern states. Esther figured she would go to Arizona then. She sent the envelope to the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and shortly after they got back to her with the various openings in Arizona. She looked at the options. Pima, Apache, Tonawatham, though back then they were called Papago, but changed their name during the 1980s, and a reservation near Flagstaff. She chose Tonawatham for no particular reason and called the BIA to tell them her decision. 
They sent her materials about the tunnel at the reservation, the people, and told her she would be working in a remote village called Santa Rosa. She would be teaching fourth and fifth graders at the Santa Rosa school. Esther was pleased. She couldn't wait to tell Florence, her best friend, about all the exciting adventures she was sure to have and the interesting people she would meet. She looked forward to the calls with Mother, where she would tell her about reservation life and what it was like to work with Native Americans. She even thought she might stay an extra year to work on the Apache Reservation, just to take full advantage of her time there, since she was going back to Harlem when she was done with the program. That she knew for sure. After all, what could possibly come between her and her beloved East Coast? You are listening to Cultivating Indigenous Voices, featuring Maya Bernadette, hosted and produced by Tina Andrew. To hear more episodes, go to kxei.org. And thanks for listening.